0: So I want to begin this sermon, of course, talking about Ellen DeGeneres. I mean, who doesn't want to? Uh, The host of The Ellen Show for 19 seasons on daytime television was once hailed as the queen of nice. She was warm, affable, and believed in equality, tolerance, and charity for all. Be kind was her personal mantra, and it was true, but not really. Eventually, Ellen was charged, at least in the public sphere, with creating a toxic, abusive work environment full of racism, ageism, xenophobia, rage, and gaslighting, and then her show got canceled. Evidently, she practiced the opposite of what she preached. But my question to you is simply this, have you ever been terrified by one of your bosses? (laughs) Have you ever had a bad boss? Or a bad authority figure, let's speak more broadly, a bad authority figure, a powerful yet despotic authority figure, perhaps an employer, perhaps a therapist, a teacher, a parent, a minister. Uh, Somebody around whom you couldn't really say what you had to say, you couldn't express what you felt, you couldn't convey your convictions, at least not safely, and they would threaten you in one way or another to keep silent about abuse over the many years of ministry that I've had the privilege of, of experiencing I've run into people who have been raised in such situations in fact I dealt years ago with a family that had been raised in a cult and it was a cult that had the kind of outward guise of a home church many home churches are very healthy and vibrant this Home church was the opposite of that, ruled by a tyrannical husband, father, and minister who made people's lives utterly miserable and were under his despotic control in every single aspect of their life, Uh, to the degree that when his children moved away and decided to join other churches, he excommunicated every single one of them and threatened them with hell. Uh, I've counseled them over the years, and I would like to think that that Fear has been flushed from the bloodstream, but I cannot say that it has. But I'm wondering if you've ever experienced that from somebody who was supposed to care for you, provide for you, or love you, and yet functionally did the opposite. Well, Jesus Christ, toward the end of his life, starts to teach dark parables. In the opening chapters of Jesus' public ministry, those parables have a more optimistic tint to them but they've darkened quite a bit as he marches toward uh, the uh, hellscape of Calvary. And he says uh, in one of his last parables that a final judgment is in fact coming. And in order to make the point, he tells a story about a boss and that boss's employees and how the boss was perceived by one of those employees. So I want to speak tonight about the talents, the employees, and the boss. We have to begin with the talents, though, because this is often one of the most misunderstood, kind of oddly misunderstood portions of this story, and I'd like you to please open your bulletin to our passage, and we'll read through some of it together, beginning in verse 14, the first verse that is in our gospel text. Jesus said, for it, that is, the coming kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away." What does the word talent mean? Well, this parable is so frequently misread and misunderstood and misapplied because of the English word talent that does not refer to what this talent refers to. In English, of course, talent means something like your natural or well-honed skills. And the point that many ministers make is you should use your talents for God. So perhaps you're gifted in crafting birdhouses or singing death metal rock or miniature golfing. You should use those talents, miniature golf to the glory of God or you're going to hell. Um, that's a stupid way of reading this passage. Um, talents, I don't know how to be more plain about this, talents are Jewish currency. That's it. It's not about birdhouses. It's just about Jewish currency. And the amounts here are quite vast, in fact. What the manager or the boss gave to his employees is rather, um, rather non-austere, to one, he gave the equivalent of $5 million. To the other, he gave $2 million. To the other, he gave $500,000. Now, this is probably more money than any of these people have ever seen in their whole lives. There's more money than I've ever seen in my whole life and probably you for yours. You know, it was funny. The other day, I got a call uh, that I thought was a, a, one of those sketchy calls that you get on your cell phone from some fake institution offering you money. So I was contacted by the... National Christian Fund, which I thought sounded like some sort of surreptitious militia. Um, the National Christian Fund. I wasn't sure what it was. They probably want. They they probably own a compound somewhere. Um, but no but so I thought it was a prank call because they said, "Look, you know, I'm from I'm Angie from the National Christian Fund and I want to talk to Ethan Magnus about a gift that was donated to your parish." I was very, you know, I was very skeptical. So I did a little research online. Evidently they really do exist, and I uh, I got the number and I called Angie back and we had a lovely chat. I, and i just wanted to make sure this was legitimate cuz i wanted to know did they want my credit card number or my bank in you know, my account number but they didn't they said no 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 we just want you to, to alert you that you're going to be receiving a gift in the mail that is is anonymous but um, and i and i joked with her and i said angie is this my million dollars coming in and she said no it's not a million but it's a good gift <laughs> i don't know what that means but hopefully it'll be great Good is an elastic term, right? For some people, good is eighteen dollars, and for others, it's five hundred thousand. So we'll see. Anyway, so this is a surprise to all of these people. All of these people get a lot of money right away, and it's theirs to invest or sort of shares in the company to to uh, to make the boss some more money. Um, and so these talents are Jewish currency given to these men. Now, the question ought to be asked, or could be asked: What does the talent represent in this parable? Because the story isn't, obviously, it's not about our own personal finances or money management. But I think that there's no obvious corollary. Remember what I tried to communicate last week about parables? Parables are not always neatly translated into systematic theology. There's not like a one-to-one correspondence, and it's really never Um, never clarified. I think the best we can say is that the talents, these large sums of money, are roughly equivalent to the treasures of the kingdom of God. Anything in Jesus of Nazareth that is good, true, righteous, and merciful is something akin to a talent. Anything that Jesus has given to us by his grace is something akin to a talent. All of the, the glory and wonder and lavish mercy embodied in him, something to that effect. But talents, they're just given to these men, And there are three of them, three employees, uh, that are given shares in this company or an allotment of money that they didn't earn. It was a gracious gift. And we learn something about the boss from this gift. He's exceptionally generous and very trusting. Just trust these people with his fortune, uh, with a lot of money worth more than several Teslas. Uh, Additionally, we learn that these gifts were not equal in size. For whatever reason, the boss knew who could handle more. And so he doles out different things to different people. Um, You know, everybody got something they didn't earn, but the gifts were not equal. Uh, And by the way, that's simply a principle that's true in life. All of us in this room have gifts and graces that do not match the gifts and graces of the person sitting next to us, and they never will. They're going to excel in ways that you won't, and you will excel in ways that they don't, right? Uh, Many of you know that I was an art minor in uh, in college. Uh, Eastern University had no art classes, and so I would go to a neighboring college, Bryn Mawr College, to take my art courses, and it was uh, an all-girls school, so it worked, you know, it was good for me. Um, uh, but, but I met my wife at Eastern, so it all worked out in a different way. But uh, nevertheless, I would do art classes there, and then they would uh, rank art projects within the college, because many people were art majors, and you would get medals. It's like the Olympics, the art Olympics, and I always got silver. I mean, I got something, but it was always silver. And I figured, well, this is what happens. I'm the token male, so uh, the matriarchy is rising against me and crushing my spirit. No, probably not. But what I learned in this whole situation is simply this. My art was decent. It was decent. Never going to win the big award, but it won't be completely thrown away either. And so I have some talent, I don't have the best talent. And eventually in that course I learned that, you know, it's perfectly fine to, uh, to win the silver medal. Um, you may remember the Snapple campaign from several years ago where, uh, this was I think in 1995, they had the We're Number 3 campaign. Coke was Number 1, Pepsi was Number 2, Snapple was Number 3. And they had a massive campaign saying how content they were to be Number 3. And if America just could just keep them at Number 3, they would be co- fully, fully uh, content. Um, similarly, these men are all given different sized gifts, different gifts, but they are all gifts. Uh, And two of them make a fortune from the original fortune, and the boss is very pleased with this new fortune, right? He doubled his money. But the third does something rather odd, maybe unexpected. He buries it. He buries it. Now, by the way, that isn't Uh, from the perspective of at least some of us who tend to be more prudent, that's not the dumbest thing you could do. You could do worse things with that money. You could be like the prodigal son and spend it on riotous living. I mean, you could invest it in a restaurant, but many of those tank. You could have put it in the stock market in 2008. (laughs) That wouldn't have been wise, right? Didn't do that. He simply buried it under the dirt. But why would he have done this? Why didn't he invest, play the market? Uh, start a new company. Why didn't he do that? It all has to do, I believe, with how he perceives his boss. How he perceives his boss. Uh, and that's the third point in the sermon. I talked about a little about talents, the employees, and now the boss. The perception of his boss is clear in verse 24. I invite you to read along with me. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Do you notice what he's saying about his boss here? It's very direct, very clear. This employee is blasting his boss. He's accusing him of being an unjust man, an unjust, callous man who is exacting. I know the kind of man you are. You want to squeeze water from a stone, don't you? you reap what you didn't sow. You, you have all these expectations for your underlings, but you've never given us proper instructions to even meet your expectations. You reap what you never sowed. meaning you're an unjust person. There's something defective about your management. There's something defective about who you are. And because I'm terrified of how you are, being this hard man who is unjust by temperament and by nature, I was terrified of your mercurial, unpredictable nature, so I opted for prudence and you can't blame me for that. Here's your money back. What was this employee's key mistake? The cause of his insolence, the foundation of his laziness. He mistook the character of his boss as a hard man. There are many commentaries that say, well, they take this passage about reaping where you've never sown and being a hard man, and they say, well, that's why you have to have a fear of the Lord, because the Lord is a hard man, and we have to fear Him. Now, there is something very biblical, commendable, and commandable about having a holy fear or an awe and respect for God. But this man is not evidencing that. He has a mistaken perspective on the boss's core nature. And notice how the boss responds to this accusation. The boss responds to him in verse 26. The master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. Note, the boss is not saying you're right about me. I'm a completely unjust, callous human being with a hard heart. You're right about me. What he is saying is, since you thought I was terrible and that I would rain down fiery judgment on you if you made any mistakes, why didn't you at least do the easiest thing possible, take the money and go to Huntington and put it in a savings account where you earn 0.5% every year so at least I could buy some Skittles or something, you know, but a little bit of interest, I mean, something. But instead, you didn't even do that. You didn't do the simplest thing. Instead, you acted out of fear and terror because you misunderstood my nature. You had illegitimate fear. And so you buried and hid away. In other words, you took the talent representing the treasures of the kingdom of God. You took the kingdom of God and you treated it like a corpse. You buried it in the ground so that nobody could see it, nobody could know it. Nobody could experience it all hidden away, hushed up, shut away, like something you do with a dead pet. That's how you treated the kingdom of God. By the way, I don't think the boss's response to this last employee would have been negative at all had he risked the one talent in some adventurous bold investment and then catastrophically lost it all. He didn't do that. He treated the kingdom of God like a dead thing. I think the problem is that he never really knew his boss. He never really knew his boss's nature, so he treated the boss's treasure like a corpse. And the result, of course, is judgment. He treated the kingdom of God as dead, so in the end, he experiences similar treatment. Him saying functionally with this act, I didn't know my boss, and the boss returns the favor and says, well, then I don't know you. And that's how the parable ends, soberly. So something about the talents, the employees, and the boss who was misunderstood by one of those employees. Now, what is the takeaway for us? Well, maybe, just maybe, you're like me, and you live with a lot of fear. Perhaps you grew up being trained to fear. Fear everything. Have a low-grade anxiety that fills your heart in every room because something could go wrong and the other shoe was always eventually going to drop. Maybe you had overprotective parents. You know, "Don't, don't run on the sidewalk. You might trip and scrape your knee. Don't have another child. It's too expensive. Don't eat from that restaurant. You might get a disease from that dirty kitchen. Perhaps the basement and foundation of all our fears, whatever they are, whether it's raising children, getting sick, whether it's COVID, whether it's politics, who knows what it is. Maybe the foundation of all these fears is that we think our ultimate boss and the ultimate foundational source of life is a flinty, frowning despot who wants nothing more than to throw us into hell. And if we believe that, that that is the center of all being, if we believe that, we will most certainly bury the talents and hopes of the kingdom of God, throw dirt on it, clay on top of it, and dead leaves on top of it, because it's better not to risk or even try ever, since we might make mistakes and permanently disappoint the celestial North Korea that we think heaven really is. We conclude, like the third employee, that the boss reaps where he didn't sow, that there's nothing really true and honest and just and loving governing the universe, and so we always choose caution and prudence in case this thing goes sideways. That's one view. Or, or we could stare at the cross. We could stare at the cross and see God at His most glorious moment. Because on the cross, we see that God is, in fact, not a hard man. God is not a hard man, an unjust boss. God is not Ellen DeGeneres, or your worst employer, or some abusive dad with a hair-trigger temper. Again, to quote the one theological wag, it isn't so much that Christ is godly, but that God is Christly. If you want to know who God is, you stare into the eyeballs of the one who stares down at you from Calvary's tree. That is your God, O Israel and O Gentiles. St. Paul tells us the following in one of his epistles. In Christ, the fullness of God dwelt bodily. Not just that God dwelt bodily in Christ, but the fullness of God dwelt bodily, meaning there is no hidden, spleeny, hard man God hiding behind the cross of Christ with a mallet ready to wallop you as soon as you get it wrong. Jesus is, in fact, the generosity of God, the evidence that he is not a hard man, the ultimate gift on sacrificial display for every last one of us. You could even read this text somewhat Christologically and say, Jesus himself is the priceless talent, the priceless talent that was given to the world but the world didn't know what to do with him. So out of fear, we buried his corpse in the ground. The world took the brilliant treasure of Jesus Christ and everything he represented and threw it into a tomb out of sight and out of mind. In short, when the treasure was given to the human race, we, like the third servant, said no. But God said yes raising him up on the third day. And now forgiveness of sins is preached to you in his name. And that treasure is yours freely. You've received the eternal merits of the kingdom of God, received by simple trust that it is true for you. And so I invite you, friends, not to hide this talent of the gospel not to hide this kingdom grace, but to simply wear it on your sleeve. Not to be like the man who was so terrified of his maker that he couldn't bear to risk anything, but instead to know your maker as the one who was revealed on the cross. And out of that knowledge, get a little zany because it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right because Jesus has dealt with everything. To wear it on your sleeve, to take the talent, the riches of God, and to love it, to enjoy it, to revel it, and then to give it away. I have a friend who has a swanky church in New York City, and he's rather good with alliteration and phraseology. And this is the motto for his church. Enjoy your forgiveness. Makes the moralists crazy, but it's so good. It's about the gospel. Enjoy your forgiveness. And I say yes to that. I say yes to that all the way to the bank. Receive the treasure. Give the treasure away. Invest beauty into the world that God so loves. I invite you in the name of our billionaire boss in his name, to smile at toughened teenagers who have track marks on their arms, to happily give distracted, mean waitresses a 40% tip, to be candid about your embarrassing flaws, because who cares? We're all mongrels after all. I invite you to be hospitable to a disreputable family on your street, you know, the people who never rake their leaves, uh, who uh, never cut their grass, and who leave their recycling bins on the side of the street forever. I invite you to forgive your idiot brother who can't stop messing up his life and listen to your indignant daughter speak endlessly about her overly dramatic life as if every word were a precious gift to you. I invite you to make peace with an enemy in this room even without knowing how things might play out in the future because what have you got to lose? You've been given everything, so just give away a little. Take the talent of the gospel and use it in a wild, heroic, free, and gracious manner, to the point of scandal, and then the world will glimpse our generous billionaire boss at the center of all things, the one who gave his life for you and for me. One theologian writes this regarding today's parable. All the while, there was one thing the lazy, terrified servant needed from the start, to live not in fear of potential mistakes, but in the knowledge that no mistake can hold a candle to the love that draws us all back home. He didn't trust his boss, he didn't love his boss, because he didn't know his boss. And so often we too make our fear more sovereign than grace. If God gives you a bike, it's because he wants you to ride it. If God gives you a talent, he wants you to use it. If God gives you a life, he wants you to live it. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They